welcome once again to the Irish in Sweden podcast. And I'm only recording the last little bits of it, like this intro you're listening to now. Fairly late in the day, lads. Going to be out at 7 o'clock on Monday morning as always. And here I am on the Sunday afternoon beforehand, sticking the last few bits and pieces in. Because do you know what? You think you're organised. You're going around the place with all your fancy dictaphones and your recorders full of interviews. You go, Asha, Chases, that's great. to be a podcast this week and next week and the week after. No bother. And then life gets in the way and you find yourself working your backside off doing all sorts of weird stuff. And uh, then you find yourself on a Sunday afternoon going, Jesus, I better fix that podcast like Kevin Cattle and go mad. I hope you're well. It's just after snowing in Stockholm here. I don't know where you are in Sweden. You could be away up north on a building site or away down south, halfway to Denmark on the train. But uh, it's been snowing in Stockholm today, which is really taking the piss, lads. Because uh, if you want to do that, that's fine. Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, grand. Christmas Day, grand. Stephen's Day, grand. The rest of it, get rid of it, right? I've had enough of it already. But it has snowed and we'll have to put up with it and that's just the way it has. But you know what? The best thing about this is that already spring is starting to get here, right? Because I've seen pictures of the boys and girls down in Malmo GEA having a kickabout down below there. And I've seen bits and pieces coming out of the Swedish Irish Society. And I know that the Spuds and Sill Theatre Company here in Stockholm are getting ready to put on their production. I think actually by the time you hear this, they might be done looking for people. But you'll go into their Facebook page, search for Spuds and Sill Theatre and go in and see if you're in Stockholm they're putting on a production again this year and I know that they were doing sort of auditions you could send in a link or that kind of thing and you know what if you tell them the podcast sent you you might be able to sneak in a late one especially if you look like Tom Cruise and you're good at the acting so you can fire that one in there I see that the um the Swedish Irish Society is coming out of hibernation, not that they ever went away, but on the 5th of February, uh, they are going to be holding an event, a book swap and Irish breakfast at our good friends at Veerstrom's Pub in Gamlastan here in Stockholm. And the idea is that you go in there, you can bring three books and you can take a books home with you as well. Now, they don't be left with a lot of books, lads, right? So don't bring in shite now that nobody will read. Bring in stuff that you know the people are going to want because otherwise they'll be stuck with them and you'll have to bring them all home at the end of the day, right? And Martin Hessian's a lovely man, right? But he has enough books of his own to be reading and he doesn't want them left around Veerson's pub so if you're going in there go in there with the intention not that you're emptying your own shelves but that you're replacing a few bits and pieces right that is on at noon 12 o'clock the middle of the day lads on the 5th of February if you want to freshen up the old library as I say the spring is fast coming and there's loads of bits and pieces going on that's just a couple of them there with Spuds and Seal and Malmo GEA being out and about tomorrow I'm going to be heading down to Gothenburg and I'm going to be trying to see a few people down there I'll be down there Monday evening and then on Tuesday Tuesday and then coming back up here on Wednesday and I'm doing another interview for another podcast I have about Swedish football or Swedish footballers uh, should I say so I'm going to be doing that uh, so again if you're listening to this on Monday the day it comes out and you happen to have any stories for me down in Gothenburg we've had quite a few lately but there's always room for more because this is not the Stockholm Irish Society this is not the Irish in Stockholm podcast lads and girls it is the Irish in Sweden podcast so you want to hear from everybody no matter where they are in the country now it's a very very special interview coming up today and I'll explain a little while why it means so much to me but before we do that lads patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm you know the spiel now the more people who can support me and many you have lately and the more the merrier the more we can get in there the better uh, the more time I can spend on doing these podcasts and doing these interviews uh, I was out there's a great interview coming up for you next week uh, from the archipelago from the Stockholm archipelago I was out with one of the Irish community there and catching up with him you know but everything anybody thrown in a five or a month 
uh, really helps with that. And on the same feed, you'll find the Arrowmanage.com podcast. You'll find the Global Gale podcast, which is like this podcast only for a global audience. And you will find the Premier Swedes podcast, which is where the interviews with the Swedish footballers who played in the Premier League pop up when I can get hold of them. And Jesus, lads, they have me heartbroken. Footballers, I don't know what it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, grand, I'll do that for you. I'll do that for you. And then they ghost the shite out of you. It's like being a 14-year-old boy again, you know, where a girl gives you her number and then doesn't answer the phone. You know, I'm sure plenty of the lads who listen to this podcast will understand that. Um, before we go into the interview, you will have seen on my Facebook and uh, and various other social media, right, that um, my old friend Christy Dignam from Aslan, I worked for Aslan or for their management company back in the day in Ireland before I ever mu- moved to Sweden. Now, Aslan had every management company in Ireland at various different points. So that's not, uh, it's not like, you know, being with the, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones for 25 years. We did a couple of years of work for them and it was great crack. But of course you'll remember, or if you've been here any length of time, you will remember the fantastic night in the Liffey in Gamla Stan when Aslan came over and just blew the back door off the joint it was just a fantastic gig um, but Christy Dignam of course the singer with Aslan an absolutely iconic figure in Irish music and in Irish culture is very sick at the moment he's receiving palliative care at home it's it's very sad uh, death unfortunately is a part of life but I know that he's getting messages for people, from people and I know how appreciative he and his family and the rest of the lads in the band are when they hear things from people all over the world because Aslan would have gone down and played in Australia and played all sorts Christy actually used to love doing those gigs abroad even if uh, they got a great reception when they were back home at the Olympia the various different pubs where they did the unplugged thing but we're putting together a special podcast and I spoke to Owen O'Connor who was the man who booked them who brought them over to the Liffey I actually have the email where he was asking me for the number of who to call to get that done so we're going to meet up we're going to talk about that but what I'd really like if you can do this if you have any memories of that gig right it was in March 2012 in the Liffey in Gamla Stone make an L voice note right send it to me on WhatsApp uh, 070-721-7715 that's 070-721-7715 and I'll include it because I want to make a little document at that time just to remember that particular event and kind of like as an offering from the Swedish-Irish community to Christy and to his family and to the band and to tell them, you know, what that night and what the band and what their music means to us, right? And even if you're just a fan, if you, even if you weren't at that gig, but, you know, maybe you might have seen them in Dublin or in Tubercurry or in Donegal or, or somewhere like that, you know, send me your memories. Send, tell me about the time you met Christy, wherever. Or you, may, you might have met Billy McGuinness somewhere or Joe or, you know, just send in anything that you got, right? And we'll put together a little tribute from the Swedish-Irish community and uh, we'll send that. We'll put the link out there. We'll put it out there for you to listen to and for everybody else to listen to. Because, you know what, I think some people... You can say that, you know, he was the, the author of an awful lot of the bad things that happened in his own life, Christy, but hey, nobody deserves that. And he's also given us an awful lot in terms of the music and that kind of thing. And they've been very, very generous to communities they've been in. Uh, most recently, they recorded a version of Crazy World, I think, with a Ukrainian choir. And it's not just doing those things for charity. It's bringing people in and seeing them and seeing the humanity in them, and seeing the art and the artistry in them, and giving them an outlet for that kind of thing. And Christy was always brilliant at that. He always recognised that in the audience that he played in front of, and many young musicians, like young George Murphy from Dunny County, where I'm from, and, and like helping people out and advising them and being a positive force in their lives. So for all the things that went wrong for the chap, he did an awful lot right in his life, and I think he deserves that light, and he deserves that love uh, now when he's struggling with it. Uh, yeah, so that's um, what we're going to do for a future podcast that's coming down the line. So send those things to me, and you know, if you didn't get the number or whatever, and you're too lazy to rewind and write it down because you're in the car, Kevin Carroll, 
uh, that's fine. Just hit me up on social media and we'll find some way of getting your voice note or your thing to me, right? And Jesus, this has turned out to be a very emotional podcast altogether because this week, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk to the woman who essentially was responsible for the greatest sporting achievement I have ever seen live, right? Now, again, if you've known me more than 15 minutes, uh, you'll know what I do for a living. I wander around the world looking at sport and talking about it and writing about it. And yes, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth and another one in my back pocket and a spare one that I'm not letting go. It's a fantastic privilege to do that. And that job brought me to the Olympics in Tokyo a couple of years back and I was one of the very few people in the in the arena when Kelly Harrington won a boxing gold medal for Ireland, right? Now, it's one thing, there's been so few gold medals for Ireland that we can nearly list them all off, right? There's Michael Carruth and there's Katie Taylor and there's a couple of others, athletes and that kind of thing, but there are very, very few. Boxing has been my thing. I always wanted to cover boxing at Olympics, so it was a dream come true. Now, as it happened, I ended up covering sailing and surfing and all manner of other mad sports as well. But I did two days of boxing, and one was the semi-final that, uh, that Kelly won, and the other was the Olympic final itself on the last day over there. And I was only thinking about that recently because uh, I was over visiting my dad, and I know my dad really enjoyed that as well, right? Our family, originally, when my mother and father got married, they lived on Portland Row, which is near the Five Lamps in Dublin, right? Do you know the Five Lamps? You know the joke that comes after that. Not going to make it. It's a family podcast. But that's basically where my family is from. Now, they moved out of there before I was born, but Kelly Harrington is from Portland Row. And when I was at that Olympic final, and I actually spoke to Kelly after the press conference after the Olympic final, and we were just talking about how mad it was that people with their roots in that part of the city could end up in Tokyo uh, talking about this after one of them had just won a gold medal, and the other, he just was there to write about it, you know? And it was phenomenal. So when I was over in Dublin recently, I picked up Kelly's book, and I had a good read of it. And what I had completely forgotten about is that women's boxing really didn't exist in Ireland until the person you were about to hear from showed up and willed it into existence, right? And not only that, but she's a Swede, right? Anya Norman was one of the people who was brought in, who, and you'll hear our story yourself, and it's just fucking jaw-dropping stuff. When you think about everything we've done since, it's jaw-dropping to hear her tell the tale from the very beginning of coming to a boxing club in rural Ireland and being told, oh, no, we don't have women here. That's just, you know, being laughed out the gate. But Anya was uh, one of the people who was absolutely instrumental in everything that happened in women's boxing, right? Pete Taylor, the father Katie Taylor, was probably the other most important person in it. But I would argue, and argue with Annie as long into the night boys and girls that Anya is up there with Pete in terms of what was done for women and for Irish boxing that ultimately led to Kelly Harrington whom she knows and loves standing on the top step in Tokyo at the Olympic final so I tracked Anya down so she's a Swede living in Ireland living in rural Ireland working as a vet and looking after horses and that kind of thing but I tracked her down there uh, about a week ago because I just had to hear her side of the story about how a Swedish woman went over there insisted Irish women box and it led us to two Olympic gold medals. So here you are, on the Irish in Sweden podcast, the magnificent Anya Norman, and how she kind of helped bring Olympic gold to our little country on the edge of the Atlantic. I think the thing I'm most curious about, and you were just starting to tell me before I pressed record there, Anya, but can you tell me exactly where you are in Ireland at the moment? Okay, I live exactly a little bit outside Callan, which would be south of Kilkenny, and I live close to Mulnahone, which has a quite strong Irish history. 
so that would be on the border between Kilkenny and Tipperary. So I'm a real Tipperary girl now. <laughs> and how on earth did you end up there, if you don't mind me asking you? Yeah. Oh, listen, it's a long story. I met a, a lovely guy in Paris thinking I got myself a Frenchman and he was Irish. And he came back to me to Sweden for a good 10 years. And then we had children. And I love to I, I loved the notion of allowing my children to grow up with two languages and two different cultures. So we said, listen, guys, this was in the middle of the boom. So we said, we'll move to Ireland. We spent four years here and then we moved back to Sweden. But we never moved back. You stayed there uh, the whole time. Yeah, and I think a lot of expats can can relate to that. It is painful to uproot yourself. <laughs> and I mean, I left I left a thriving business, I left my sport, I left my family back in Sweden. And I landed here thinking that Ireland, you know, it's just another European country, couldn't be much different to Sweden, but my God, it was. Uh, so so it took a while to really root myself and you know become a part of the community here and once I was once I was this is really home to me and it has a culture here still here in Ireland that suits me as a person mm. where people see each other people hear each other and it, you know it's Irish it's a little bit you know it is as it is Exactly. You have to take them as you find them yeah. kind of thing. But before you yeah. moved there, um, obviously, I mean, your husband or your partner was Irish. Had you spent a lot of time in Ireland at all, Anya? And what did you no, think of it the first time you got there? No, I had never been here. I had never been here. I guess I was just like any other Swedes, you know, thinking that Ireland was a little bit of an exotic paradise. And I'm, 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 I'm as a profession, I'm a vet and I'm an equine vet. So, you know, horses was always big in my life. Mm. And we know the history Ireland has had, you know, with horse breeding. So, of course, that sounded attractive. And little did I know that we were moving in the midst of a boom just to land two years later in a terrible recession that really hit the equine industry. And, you know, that wiped the feet from under my business. Mm. So, so, so ch challenges, challenges did never scared me and having to find solutions and adapt never scared me. So it was a matter of keep on, keep on surviving and do something else, you know, mm. do something else in life. How did your children settle in? Because it's one of those things, as you said, often you'll move and you think, yeah, we'll do this for three or four years. And then you just don't go back, like, you know. And I assume mm -hmm. your children were, they were at an age where you could speak to them and you could talk to them. And obviously they would have had friends and that kind of thing here. What did they say when you wanted to move them all over there? They were young enough. They they had a grasp of the English language. We all got shocked because, you know, English, not English, English here. It took a long while before we could understand the Irish English. That took a long while, but but they settled into a multi-denominational school. We managed to find one at first. Um, they were two and four and six. Was not a problem at all. Uh, it was only one thing with the middle girl coming home every day and telling us that the teacher called them the jungle elephants. And we couldn't get why they, why they were called jungle elephants until we realized they were junior infants. So there were funny stories <laughs> like that. Um, 
It took a while, but but we very quickly also moved out to the countryside. That we come from the countryside, and we we had the horses, we had the dog, and we had the cats, and we had the activities. You know, we very quickly found our sport and our niche, and life kind of kept on with the normal routines in a different country. And did the, did the kids get involved in sort of Gaelic games and that kind of thing? Because obviously they wouldn't have had that. You're from around the Midlands, then, Yon Shopping kind of thing, aren't you? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I, I, we are from Yon Shopping. Um, uh, hurling, hurling was a new uh, experience. Uh, they tried in school, yes. But do you know what? It wasn't for them. And maybe because they did, they weren't brought up with the tradition of, of hurling. Hmm. So they never really took on to that they play it they enjoy it but not you know at any kind of level and maybe because as well that we were always engaged in more individual sports mm. you know I'm a boxer the kids did their taekwondo karate boxing so it, it, there's a big difference there between individual sports and team sports mm. um, so we just went down that route and now we're in Tipperary you can imagine and the hurling here Oh, God, so, it's like religion. Yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, we, we thoroughly enjoy it. We thoroughly enjoy watching it. But but the kids have just found, you know, their own things. Okay. You, you mentioned it there because this is the fascinating thing about you, right? You're this lovely woman living down there, Tipperary, a vet, looking after the horses and the animals, etc., etc. Oh. But you're actually a very, very good boxer. Where did your interest in boxing come from? Um... I'm a sports, yeah, listen, I'm a sports person. Um, I like a healthy lifestyle, but I actually think it came from the betting. You know, working hard, having to tackle these stallions, having to hold the foals and castrating beasts. And uh, there was a stage when I felt like, God, there's not a single horse who can, who can, you know, wipe the feet from under me. So I yeah. thought, I am going to go do some, try some boxing. And I went, that, that actually happened back in Yenshipping. So I went down to the boxing club, joined it. And after one session, I was hooked. So I boxed, uh, I boxed a lot with the club there in Yenshipping. Um, but that was just a few years before we moved to here. So we moved here in 2006. We moved here. And of course, you know, I had found my sport. So the first things I had to do here in Ireland was to find a place to live, find a school for the kids and find a boxing club for myself. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> How yeah. difficult was that? Was that oh, you have no idea. But I called the club in Callan and I got to speak to an old man, Jimmy, and he laughed his head off. And he said, we've never had a girl ever in the club. We do not take on girls. And by the way, do you know who that, you know, Ingemar, Ingemar Johansson, do you know who that is? And I knew who that was. And he said, okay, come down. And I went down and I think that he was just prepared to try me out and have a laugh at me and send me home and say, what was it I said? You know, girls, don't do boxing, go home. But um, I, I must have made some kind of impression. So he let me stay in the club and eventually I got to coach in the club and I'm still with the club and Ireland has changed. Ireland has so changed. 
It certainly has. Who would you have been sparring against as the first woman through the door in the boxing club in Callan? You obviously would have been sparring against against lads, against people of my age and my size. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I wasn't young. I was 30. What was I? Around 40, almost 38, 40, something like that. Yeah. So it was not a young girl they got down to the club. It was, you know, a, a, a woman, a lady, yeah. even worse so. Um, but but I sparred against the boys. But what actually happened just a, just a month later was that there was an advert online about the IABA, which is the Irish Amateur Boxing Association, looking for um, looking for a person to run the Women in Sports Initiative, which was launched back then to boost girls participating in sport because Ireland had a serious problem with girls being in sport at primary school level and never keeping on. You know, that was the tradition. And that was something that shocked me, being a Swedish woman coming over. But the deadline for this job was already passed. So I sent an email to the IABA. It was actually to Gary Keegan. And I said, listen, guys, I know I'm too late, but if ever you feel that you could have a need for, you know, a, a woman in the sport, don't hesitate to call me. He called me back the next day and asked me up for an interview. Hmm. Um, and I went up not knowing, not actually not understanding the Irish culture. I was very Swedish, very Swedish in my thinking that it was, you know, we're equal and women mm. can and girls have the right to do whatever they want. Um, and that was probably the message I delivered through that interview. Yeah. And I think it must have surprised them, maybe shocked them, maybe uh, interested them a little bit. So I got the job. It's it's amazing because in one way I can't imagine anybody else getting the job. I like you know I find it so hard because I'm a man of fifty years of age who grew up watching amateur boxing and the IABA and watching the way they do things. And to me, it's the most natural thing in the world that they would have said what they said to you. Oh no, we don't have women here. What Jimmy said to you in in Callum Boxing mm-hmm. Clubs? Oh, we don't have women in here because that's the way it was when I was growing up. And yet, it's so obvious to give you that job because you came in there with your Swedish way of thinking, but. What was the hardest part? Because, okay, they made a decision to change by getting you in there, but that doesn't mean they're going to do everything you say, right? Yeah, but you are so right. But I can already see now that you have that open mind that the younger generation here will have and that a lot of us Swedes would have, you know, especially Mm. maybe Swedish women, because we're used to we're used to a high level of equality. But I think that all sports were forced to bring in this, you know, women in sports initiative. Mm-hmm. And I knew now of, of, in, in, in afterhand that the boxing did not want this, but they had to because all sport organizations had to. Now, Gary Keegan is, was very forward and he saw the potential that I could bring, you know, with this natural equality thinking that, oh, of course, bring on the girls. Mm. But, but, but there was a big fraction in the boxing association that did not want this. They wanted things to stay the way it was. Girls should not box. 
girls should do other things. And we cannot open up for girls. We have no time for the girls. We have no budget or finances for the girls. But for fake sake, we have to do this. So bring in that, you know, bring in that Swedish lady and we'll control her. That was the attitude that I did not understand from the beginning. Yeah. So, so started good. It very quickly turned into a shockingly realization that, oh gosh, I'm actually not welcome. I'm actually supposed to be quiet. You know, yeah. do nothing, do nothing. Bring in the money to the association, but do as little as possible. So and that was not that was not me. That was absolutely not what I was because I wasn't employed by the boxing association. I was employed by Sport Ireland yeah. to do this with the boxing association. And I had very good friends there. I had people that were longing for this. Mm. There were clubs, there were coaches, and there were girls, a few a handful of girls longing and waiting for this. Mm. But I started by making um, a national survey, and it's actually quite interesting. This was back in 2006. There were only in the whole country of Ireland 140 girls allowed into various boxing clubs, and most of them were very young. I'm guessing Katie Taylor would have been one of them. Sinead Kavanagh probably would have been one of them. That was probably before Kelly Harrington started to box, was it? Or just around that time? No, Kelly was there because I remember, I remember, I I, I, I like to just walk around and listen, listen to the, Mm -hmm. listen to people, uh, find out what do people want? What is the desire? Where can I actually do something? And one of the first one I met was actually Kelly Harrington. She must have been 16, 17 back then. Mm. And she was sitting there in the national stadium, far back up, like a little grumpy teenager. And I went over to say, and I introduced myself and she's on Kelly. And I said, Kelly, what's your dream? What do you want? I mean, I'm here to help the girls. What do you think I should do? And Kelly said, I want to fight. I want to compete. <laughs> that was it. She, she just wanted, wanted to compete. She just wanted to compete. All of them, we want to compete. Yeah. And there's nothing for us. And then they said, we want to be seen. We want to be taken seriously. Mm. So there was a handful, just as you say, Katie was there, but Katie was already driven by her father. Peter, yeah. But then you had the likes of Sinead Kavanagh, you had Kelly, you had Clara Fraher. You had a lot of young girls, Amy Broadhorse, all these girls that are up at the top now, they were there knocking at the door. They were very young. Well, nobody, nobody looked after them. How do you change that, Anya? Because as I say, I mean, I know that mindset because I've, I had it once myself. You know, I mean, when we grew up, women didn't play sport. And if they did, you just didn't pay them any attention. It was all about us lads and winning the All-Ireland in football or hurling. Or, or, and then when we boxed, it was always about us getting to the Olympics. And that You would never have heard of a woman boxing uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, for instance. And if you went into a club and saw a woman boxing or doing Taekwondo, He'd be asked, okay, are you here to clean the mats when we're finished? Or are you lost? Or that kind of thing. That was the mentality. And you noticed straight away that you weren't, you know, originally you were there to sort of take a box. You were there to bring in the extra government funding and then preferably to keep your mouth shut and not get in the way of what was going on. How do you go about changing that mentality as the lone Swedish woman in Irish amateur boxing at that point? 
I think, well, first of all, I actually didn't even know the level of skills in the girls because I didn't know. I didn't have the background. I was new to the country. I hadn't seen the girls. But my first thinking was that I have to start organizing something to bring together the girls so that I get those clubs coming together and I get those coaches coming together so that I get to know them, they get to know me, and they meet each other. Okay, Because I was not going to be forever the one organizing everything. I was, the, 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 there's a word for that, the catalysator, mm. you know, igniting things and starting things and starting a kind of cooperation among the clubs and the coaches. Mm. So very quickly, I invited all clubs in Ireland, regardless of whether they had girls or not, I, it was an open invitation to come to the national stadium because everybody wanted me to do things. Oh, Anya, travel out to the provinces, you know, mm. get away from here, go away. And I said, no, I want all the girls, all the clubs to come to the national stadium this year for once a month to meet up and we organize training session, regular mm. training session in the heart of the boxing. And we actually started, the first session I remember was already in that June. Kenneth Egan and Eric Donovan ran it for me, which was brilliant. You know, two young guys, they didn't have any thinking, you know, they were open-minded and they thought this was exciting. And I think there were 40, 50 girls coming to that first session. And we had a full day training in the morning and they had lunch and we got to talk to each other and training in the afternoon. And the good thing was that all these old men that run the association, they were able to come in and throw an eye at this or what's going on in there. So let's have a look at these girls. And they came and they have a look and maybe not on the first. They were impressed, I'd say, or scared at the first occasion that there was such a massive show up. But down the line, they must have seen that, oh, my God, you know, they're not that bad. They get punched on the nose. They're not running crying as we thought they would do. Mm. You know, the girls were impressing. Yeah. So I went from these regular training session and then very quickly we had summer camps. And by then I had Pete Taylor to help me Mm. and Pat Ryan. And then... We kept on that year, you know, it was me banging, 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 banging on on, on the walls of of the traditional male-dominated sport. And I think it was already the next year that we organized a massive international training camp Mm. at the National Stadium with the likes of Katie Taylor, Sinead Kavanagh, you mentioned she's doing MMA now. But we also had over little Nicola Adams from UK. Yes, yeah. Became, uh, we had Savannah Marshall there. We had Come a Dutch yeah. team. We had two little girls from Sweden coming over. They were young, but they were, you know, they were given this. And this was not, unfortunately, IABA doing the job. I think I came up with the IDs and I had, thankfully, Pete Taylor and Pat Ryan to help me out because they love to be in this buzz Mm. and not only them they were there were so many good male coaches the female coaches came later on 
but there were male coaches there that had this open attitude and who could see the future where girls had a right to 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 practice that sport as much as boys mm. and it's not only you know see for me it it was not only giving that that the sport to the girls for me it was also a change of attitude because if ireland as a country was going to evolve girls needed to think equality regardless of if they wanted to box or if they wanted to become a president or if they wanted to study rather than getting married mm. it's the attitude in the girls that had to change yeah in Because, the girls yeah no i was going to say that so many of those things so many of those avenues were closed to them if you wanted to appear in the olympics for ireland you'd have to run because there was very little else that they would have been sort of allowed or encouraged to do or that the facilities would have been there for. Um, when did you think, Anya, when did you notice that, hang on a second, now everybody's with me? And no disrespect to Peter Taylor, but Pete's own daughter was involved, Katie. She was involved there. So he kind of had a vested interest. But Kenny Egan, who's a former Olympian himself, he didn't have a wife or a girlfriend or a daughter that was involved there, and he got involved. When did you notice the attitude starting to change? Now, hang on a second, these girls are actually quite good. Well, you are right when you say that. Now, it's exactly as you say. Pete Taylor was invested and he was pro-women's boxing because of his daughter. Okay, he has an open mind, but it was, of course, the talent, you know, of his daughter that was his leading star. Now, if I didn't have Pete Taylor, who would I have to push? I had Billy Walsh. Yeah. Billy Walsh, who was the director of the high performance and who later was forced to leave and ended up running uh, women's boxing in the US. Yeah. But Billy Walsh put a very high bar of level of the bar of, of quality and yeah. he didn't see the girls being good enough. Okay, mm. P. Taylor didn't see the girls being good enough. Well, I was there seeing it more like, come on, guys, let them try. You know, throw them into the deep end and let them realize themselves that we're not good enough and we have to train harder. Okay? Mm. There are different aspects. Now, it was probably not until the bosses, you know, the president of the IABA saw that there is potential here. Okay, That was 2010, 2011. Mm. It took a while. By then, I actually ran another survey in the country, and the number of female boxers had risen to over 2,000 in just wow. a few years. And we had also sent a few to youth European championship. They had opened for girls and European championship. You know, we, we were starting to send the girls. And when they started coming back with medals, bronze, silver, That is when all of a sudden the president of the IABA saw this as interesting, mm. but for the wrong reasons. It was not to boost the women's boxing even more. It was all of a sudden a chance to jump onto the wagon and get a little bit of the shine of the glory. Mm. So all of a sudden they now wanted to jump onto the wagon because now they saw that this is going in the right direction here. We want to be part of this and we want to, you know, yeah. be able to tell the world that we did this. And yet they've done nothing to encourage it. They've done nothing to create the 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 environment in which these girls can thrive. But by Jesus, when somebody stand there getting a medal, they're there looking for their share of the credit. No, it, 
I'm not going to say at all. This is not necessarily Irish. This was a problem in the Boxing Association. That in general, it's yeah. a lot about greed, glory, and fame. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's okay. a famous and politician. That is why boxing. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was yeah. going to say there was a famous politician called Charles Hawhey, and any time anybody won anything, whether it be in a cycling race or, a, or an Olympic medal or that kind of thing, he was always there when the plane landed. And Jesus, he'd have mm-hmm. no idea who he was looking at mm-hmm. as they were coming off the plane with their gold medals. Um, Katie Taylor's gold medal in London in 2012. Now, I always see Katie as being a little bit separate, a little bit apart from the rest of Irish boxing because her father was so instrumental in in creating her as a boxer and ensuring that she had the right conditions uh, in which to become a world champion as a professional, but also an Olympic champion as an amateur. Um, How much did her winning that gold medal in London matter to, to women's boxing in Ireland? Was that a big shot in the arm or was there just another whole load of people looking for credit for things they didn't do? I think it has been, listen, it is crucial. It's super important. It's an amazing achievement. And it is where she wanted to go and she got it. And we are, I mean, we are so happy on her behalf. But I also think that it's been said a lot that it is thanks to that, that women's boxing excelled and accelerated. And I would like to say, hold on here now a little bit. It is not entirely the truth because now you're forgetting all the little Pat McDonald's and the little Bart Simpsons out in Waterford. You're forgetting all those little coaches now who have been struggling already for 10 years to build up the next generation of girls. And hang on here. Kelly Harrington has been here all the way. Why are you forgetting about her? And that was before her win. She was already there. And Yes, Katie Taylor showed everyone that we had the level of skills and we could bring a girl to that level. But a lot of girls were not far behind already. Mm. They had just not been given yet yet the opportunity to represent Ireland and to fight at that level. But they had been prepared to a level very close to Katie. Mm. But we also have to remember that Katie is her her te- her skills, her technical skills, they're outstanding, outstanding. Mm. And the only one that can match that in skills that I have seen is Nicola Adams. Yeah. They have That's... the same, you know, if there's a speed and there's a technique technicality in their punching and in their footwork that you won't see very easily. They're just outstanding sports persons. Mm. It's funny because sometimes when you watch heavyweight boxers, you see the punch before they throw it. And and Katie is the exact opposite, that she throws the punch Mm. and you're still there a second later going, hang on a second. Oh, yeah, okay, that was a left hook to the body or (laughs) whatever. And like when you see her live as well, she's just a phenomenal athlete. Mm. On that subject, Anya, because obviously this is something that you've done yourself. You've boxed as an amateur. You've gone through coaching, helping these girls, creating the structures for them to thrive. What makes the difference between... A girl who's shown up at a club in Belfast or in Callan or in Dublin and somebody who's shown up at the Olympics and able to get to that, the European and the world and the Olympic level. What what are the differences there? Are they technical? Are they down to diet? Are they down to training? What what, what makes a great boxer, in your opinion? Um, I'm not sure it is down to talent because you cannot be born a talented boxer. You know, you can possibly be born having a capacity for gymnastics by being flexible. But when it comes to many sports, 
talent is only one thing. And the other thing is not even motivation. It is dedication. It's discipline and it's dedication. Okay. It's just the hard work that has to go in. And that is your attitude. It's your mentality, but it's also the support that you have around you, you know, from your family, your siblings, your parents, to your community, to the sports club you're involved in. But there's also there's also something. Uh, I had a discussion with my young 24 year old son. He came back from Sweden there after Christmas, and he was he said, "Mummy, mummy, do I have to go back to Ireland?" And I said, "Yeah, you have to come back." And he said, "But it's medieval," <laughs> and we laughed at that. And then I said, "But but I said, Eric, that is exactly what we like because do you know what we have here in Ireland? We have the grit." You know that grit when all motivation is gone and even the discipline is out through the window and you're tired and you don't want to go and run and you don't want to train and you don't want to go into that black zone and throw up after training. Mm. That's when the Irish grit kicks in Mm. and you just do it. And that is what brings out a good sports person. Like, you know, you don't want to go swim before school when you're a teenager, but you do it and your mother is driving you there. She doesn't want to get up at four o'clock every morning, but the Irish grit kicks in and she does it. And the teenager goes and he does it and then he goes boxing in the evening. That's the Irish grit that you have here. That is the the Irish people listening to this would be delighted to hear you say such (laughs) lovely things about them. I I wanted to ask you something, right? The best, I was one of the very few people who was in the arena when Kelly won the gold medal for Ireland. And it's still to this day the greatest thing that I've ever seen. Um, What what did it feel like for you to watch Kelly's progress through that? Because she didn't have a sort of a straight route. She wasn't like Katie, where, you know, her father was there. I know her family, one or two of the lads played football in that. I think one of the brothers was a coach in Iceland at the time uh, with the football. But she didn't really come from a boxing family. You'd seen her journey all the way to the Olympics. So when you see her in that final, the Olympic final on the last day of the Games, how did that feel for you after the journey that Irish boxing had been on with you? Yeah, emotional, because it's as you said, she she's had a different journey. Okay, she nothing was served to her on a silver plate. Mm. She had to fight from the beginning. She comes from a a underprivileged area, an area with social issues. You know, there's no money there. (coughs) Girls are not supposed to to do anything like this. Yeah, Mm. girls are just supposed to 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 become uh, home wives. And 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 Kelly struggled. Kelly was not supported by her coaches, really. She had to change clubs. She wasn't fully supported by Pete Taylor. She was cranky. She was left out. And yet, despite a lot of things going against her, she stood tall and stubbornly worked her way, you know, but more slowly, steadily, committed and dedicated and she brought out that grit again that oh I'm not going to give up I'm going to do this and I remember one thing with Kelly she came to me one day and she had problem losing the last kilo for a fight and she said Anya should I cut off should I shave my head and get you know get rid of the hair Mm -hmm. for the last kilo and I said Kelly don't you can lose that last kilo but don't go and cut off your hair but she she was prepared to go 
through extreme measures to get there. And the nice thing with Kelly is that she got there, she won. But look at her now, how humble she is. This is, has not gone to her head. She brings everything back to her community, to that level where she came from. And that is beautiful. It was amazing to see that uh, the open uh, the open top bus tour down to uh, to Portland Row, where she's from. My family used to live on the same street, just a little bit further down, and to see everybody out there. And that was the thing. She came into the press conference afterwards, and she sat down. She was looking at all these journalists, and she's going, "Jesus, this is amazing!" And I was sitting up the front, just going, "Yeah, they're here for you, Kelly. They're here for this girl <laughs> from Portland yeah. Row." Yeah. Um, you mentioned it, you sort of alluded to it once or twice there, Anya. She wasn't exactly, she didn't have that straight road. I mean, she was a little bit of a sort of a problem child in her own way because, you know, she did maybe didn't have that same attitude of, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do absolutely anything. You know, was it difficult for you to sort of get her to realize the potential that she had when she was 15, 16, 17? No, not for me, because I think I could see it. My challenge which is actually the challenge for any coach and any parent, is that how do we keep the kids on the narrow, on the straight? How do we keep them into the sport? How do we make the sport fascinating and interesting enough for them to stay with it rather than starting hanging out, you know, in the corners of the street and then the pubs and, and, and messing? But isn't that a challenge that we always have as parents, coaches and society? And... I, I, uh, now, listen, it's long since I lived in Sweden. I understand Sweden has its own problems right now. But Ireland has very much been, you know, that you, you train your sport until a certain age and then you have a pop culture and then you raise a family. And that is just being repeated. And we had now to stop that and keep the girls. Well, I'm talking girls now because that's what I, you know, I mean, to, mm. to keep them in the sport not only for a certain time, but until they reach their maximum, which in Kelly's case was an Olympic gold. And she will bring that on now to kids in her area and to her, you know, future children. And that is how we change society, little by little, one person after the other, but we change. What's the the situation or the status with with boxing, particularly for Irish women at the moment? Are you still involved? You mentioned you coach down at at the club in Callan. There, uh, how healthy or otherwise is it? Because boxing is a is a for those who don't know, boxing is you know on the verge of getting kicked out of the Olympics because it hasn't been the best run sport, not just in Ireland but all over the world. You know, uh, where is it now? What is this? Is it still doing good things for Irish kids? Do you think? Uh... At, at at local community club level, it's it's very good. You know, it, it's healthy, of course. Top level has been very corrupt, a lot of intrigues. It's a lot very political. There's a power game. But the president that sat maybe for 20 years, you know, and kind of created this bullying culture, he's gone. He's replaced with a new president, which has Jerry O'Mahony, which has much modern, you know, much kinder attitude to people around him. But but and he has re-established a little bit a better reputation for boxing at top level here in Ireland. Mm. But then we have the international scene, which is just a replica of what was going on here in Ireland. It is corrupt. It is men. It is unfortunately men with greed and power hungry 
mm-hmm. and there's money and 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 fame involved so it's dirt i'm dirty i am mm-hmm. not involved with iaba anymore i have I personally, I have moved on and my kids have moved on as well. I would love to engage at, at, well, I am still at club level here in my little town, Mm. but I would not involve again at at top level here in Ireland. You wouldn't like to get involved there again, no? There are days when I would love to jump in again. I think they're actually looking for someone right now, you know, to, to take over the position that I had. And sometimes I'm tempted, but, but uh, I think you never, you should never take steps back in life. I don't want to go back to what I used to do. Mm. If I was to do something, I would like to bring in something completely new, something even better, something even more beneficial for not only the girls, but for the sport itself mm. that might come in the future. But um, I think, I think first of all, this sport has to, clear up at international level Mm. and we don't know about Paris and the future I think they want sport in the Olympics box I mean they want boxing because boxing is um, a captivating sport it's exciting you know it's Mm. it's friendly for the audience friendly that people want boxing there Mm. but they're playing a game right now it's a game yeah, there's, there's always a sort of a political game going, well, if you don't yeah. clean up your act, well then, and then all of a sudden somebody comes in and a few small things change and, you know, they go another four years and then in 2025 or whatever, they'll be moaning again and that kind of thing, you know? Um, do you ever see yourself, you mentioned uh, your children there sort of wondering about whether or not they were going to go back to Ireland and that. Where do you see yourself in five or 10 or 15 years time? Because I'm sure Swedish boxing would love to have you down in Jön Shopping or here in Stockholm if they could. Yeah. Well, do you know what? Do you know what? There, there was a program there uh, being started recently to, to, to involve children and mainly girls into sport down in Palestine. Wow. And <laughs> sorry, but I have a young child. He's, he's still only 13. Yeah. So I know, uh, you know, I have to. I have to be there for him until he's 19 and he, he can fly away. But that is maybe a little bit what I would love to do. I don't want to go back to Sweden. Sweden is okay and organized. Ireland is going to get organized. Um, they, but there are other areas in the world where I as a person might have something to give, you know, mm. give back in life. And like Palestine, wouldn't that be lovely? to be there and tell girls that girls you you can we can do sport together we can actually box together we can listen life can change for you too that that would be tempting I'll tell you, you have me head exploding now with the possibilities of what Anya Norman might do. If you give her a pair of boxing gloves and a one-way ticket down to Palestine, that would be something else. Anya, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And uh, hopefully, if you do decide to make any such life-changing decisions in the future, that you might share them with us here on the Irish and Sweden podcast. But for Um, now, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. And, and, And thank you, everyone being over there in Sweden, listening to me being in Swedish over <laughs> here in Ireland is a little bit fantastic, but it's been a pleasure, really, really. And you know where I am if there's ever, you know, something more to talk about. Don't you worry. We'll, we'll be looking you up very soon again, I can tell you. Thanks yeah. very much. Bye. Bye. Olympic final. Gold medal on offer. Here she comes. 
What a moment. Three rounds. Here we go. Ferreira, she hasn't lost a round, but she's faced nobody like Kelly Harrington so far. What a fight this is. Right hook lands, left hook lands. Shirley Harrington has done enough. She's done it, unanimous. Yeah. Olympic champion, Kelly Harrington. There you go. The greatest thing I ever saw live. And I wish I could have found a greater uh, recording of the commentary than that because the commentary on that fight was absolutely brilliant. I obviously didn't hear it because it was in the arena, but uh, I heard it afterwards and Damien did a great job of calling the action there. And uh, But I can't find it. I was in on YouTube and I was in on RTE and everything and I couldn't find it. And I found one with the Olympics. This is a bit uh, inside baseball, lads, right? But they have what's called uh, the world feed. And you get laddies like me who'll sit there commentating sports they barely ever seen. And uh, they never get that enthusiastic, you know, so as Irish people sitting there watching Kelly, you know, you're trying to do your job and you're trying to be sort of impartial and that kind of thing. Hard not to get carried away when you love boxing as much as I do. And that was fantastic to see. But when you're on TV or radio, especially Irish TV or radio, you can go absolutely nuts. So I wish I had been working for them that day, but it was just absolutely outstanding. And to hear Anya's battle uh, to get things right for Irish women, I hope that's behind us now. I hope we have a situation now where, where young girls and young boys get everything they need. Boxing is such a great sport. If you've had the, the misfortune to sit beside me at any point in a pub and hear me waffling on about how, how great any sport is, but in particular things like boxing and that for building character, especially for young kids with lots of energy and that kind of thing, uh, the kind of people who you think, oh, you know, Jesus, they need a good, you know, need to be tired out before you send them to bed at even. And it's great because, you know, it's a great discipline. And you, it's there's a lot of life lessons to be learned in boxing as well. You don't get anything in boxing without working very hard for it. And I can strongly recommend, actually, uh, Zach Elbazadi is about to nick my copy of the book, right? So it's not it's not in circulation until Zach has finished it. But uh, Kelly's book, which she wrote together with Roddy Doyle, is absolutely, it's a fantastic read. It's so typically Kelly and it's so typically Roddy because it's very, very funny. But I kind of get the feeling that Roddy got the easy end of that writing gig, right? Because it seems to me he just stuck a dictaphone under our nose and hit record and then just had somebody transcribe it for him because it's exactly like listening to her talk so if you've heard her on the radio or bumped into her uh, in St Vincent's Hospital where she was it's, it's just exactly it's just her telling stories about how she got there and it's brilliant altogether now you know that Roddy went back through the archives and picked out the right spelling of the right name for you know whatever Thai boxer or Finnish boxer Mira Potkinen that Kelly might have met you know that he did that you know because uh, you can't imagine Kelly sitting there going yeah Potkinen is P-O-T you can't imagine her sitting there and spelling it out for Roddy you know but he certainly got uh, the easiest end of that gig. I can imagine it was a, a great job to get to be able to sit there and listen to Kelly telling her Olympic stories. Right, we're nearly done for this week. As I say, I have the interview for next week done, but get in touch, lads, right? We don't want the well of interviews running dry. And I've been out and about, actually. I bumped into Harry Bourne yesterday. I'd love to get Harry on to uh, the podcast as well. So I'm always looking for people to talk to, and especially uh, women, right? So I'm going down to Gothenburg, and I was begging the Gothenburg Irish there, going, look, especially if there's women involved down there in academia, in business, or in sport. We heard from Claudia recently uh, down there in the Midlands, who's involved in politics down there. It's all these kinds of things that, that, you know, we want to bring these stories to the community. This is a community podcast. It exists because you do. Otherwise, it's just me sitting here talking to myself as usual, right? So get me in your ideas. I'm going to catch up with the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden, who are also very generous sponsors of this podcast in the near future to see what they're up to. But if in the meantime you have anything, do get in touch with me. 
and of course a long planned trip up towards the north of Sweden I'm going to do that at some point and uh, go up and meet a few boys and girls up there as well but I have to know that these are going to come out and meet me lads no point me going up there and sitting in the pub and, and that's your night off like you know so uh, do let me know what you're up to if your Gaelic football team or has started up again if you're doing anything like that you know um, so yeah get in touch you know where to find me on social media right I'm running out of things to say here so I shall leave it at that I'll be back with you again 7 o'clock next Monday morning another episode of the Irish in Sweden podcast will drop until then my friends take care of yourselves take care of one another and I'll see you out there on the road good luck <laughs>